Hello and welcome to our viewers on cruxinvestor.com and also our listeners to Cruxcast. We're going to be speaking with Anthony Maluski. He's the CEO of Cobalt 27. How are you, Anthony? Hey, thanks, sir. I'm great. Well, thanks, thanks for joining us. Yeah. Um, why don't we kick off and uh, kind of set the scene for everyone, give us a sort of two-minute overview of Cobalt 27. Yeah, so you know, when I think about Cobalt 27, I want to step back and really start to think about the world. And you know, what we're seeing today is a structural change in two of the most important industries in the world, namely the energy business mm -hmm. and the automobile industry. So you know, if, you, if you think about crude oil today, something like 60% is used in transportation, maybe even more, six to zero. Uh, if you think about uh, the automobile industry and what's happening there, you're seeing almost every automaker in the world transitioning into electric vehicles and hybrids. You're seeing uh, autonomous, uh, autonomous vehicles and the rise of the autonomous vehicle sort of any day now coming. I, I don't know if, if you would have noticed in the last kind of week Tesla announced a million of these vehicles in the next year. I don't know if they'll hit that target, but you're seeing massive disruption. Mm. And you know, when we set out to create Cobalt 27, we were thinking about how do you capture that disruption as an investor? Like, What is the best way? And what we realized was it's tremendously challenging because while we can all agree that these changes are coming and you can't really stop them, mm. what, what we weren't able to kind of nail down was how do you play? Like, do you buy Tesla stock? I don't know, maybe actually Ford is gonna be the winner. Potentially Beijing Auto, like we, I don't know. Um, maybe you should buy Nvidia, the chip maker. Maybe you buy one of the sensor makers. And then we realized something, which is, so long as you believe that there's going to be a winner, so long as you believe that there are going to be electric vehicles sold, the winner is actually basic materials. And the reason is, is because every single electric vehicle, every single hybrid is going to have a battery. And that battery, is a lithium ion battery that has lithium, nickel, you know, cobalt, mm -hmm. manganese, you know, these basic materials. And so we set out to create a proxy for the adoption of the electric vehicle, the disruption of the energy industry. And that proxy is really cobalt 27. Okay. So I think there's a general acceptance that people are moving towards, you know, electric vehicles, batteries, whatever they do, storage for homes, yeah, businesses, etc. Like it's, it's all coming coming down a lot and there's a lot of information in the marketplace about that. So tell me a little bit about your strategy because a lot of companies come to us without a business plan. Yeah. They have no written business plan which surprises me uh, having worked outside of this space. So tell me a bit about your strategy and why you think that's going to give you the edge. Yeah, so it's very simple. Uh, we have uh, copied in a way Franco Nevada or Wheaton Precious' business model, which is streams and royalties. You know, we are not miners. We go out and we seek to uh, do streams and royalties with world-class partners. Mm -hmm. So if you look at uh, the first cobalt stream ever done, mm -hmm. we did uh, with uh, Valet. So Valet is a world-class mining operation, right? Mm -hmm. So they're the operator of the mine. If you look at a transaction that we're in the process of closing, it's a nickel cobalt mine, once again, in operation. MCC uh, is the operator. So the business model is very similar to the Francos and Wheatons of the world who focus on precious metals. But what we've said is we're going to replicate that business model, but focus on the battery metals, particular nickel and cobalt, 
that are absolutely critical to the lithium ion battery. But you also have some physical products as exactly. well, I notice, and some interest in other battery metals as well. So it's, it's not a sort of pure play, royalty play, is it? No, I mean, you know, you have to kind of um, play the hand you've been dealt, as it were, mm. and because of the specialty nature of uh, cobalt and nickel, um, we had to be a bit creative, and mm. when we launched the company, we actually launched with 2,000, approximately 2,000 metric tons of cobalt, mm. and then we bought another 900 tons subsequently. You know, a few months after but launch. Why, why do that? What, what's, what are you doing? Hedging? Well, no. So that or? was that was the foundation of the balance sheet. So right. um, you know, when you have a physical commodity like that, you can actually take leverage. Right. And in the early days, we wanted to build the balance sheet so that we could do the subsequent transactions, like the acquisition of the uh, royalty on Boise's Bay or the Dumont, the Dumont royalty. So that was really a strategy around building a balance sheet. So, so how, does, how does that work? You're, you're, you're leveraging that? Why wouldn't you just sell that into the market? So we, um, we haven't used leverage to this point. However, we have a credit facility available to actually leverage it. There's a couple hundred million bucks. Yeah, exactly. So uh, why, why don't we sell it? You know, I think one of the things, so I've talked briefly about the fact that we've replicated the Franco Nevada model. Mm. I think one differentiated aspect of our business is we're creating an ethically sourced supply chain. So everything we do is outside of the Congo. And you know, we can talk about it later, but there are a lot of issues around conflict minerals with cobalt in the Congo. And so one of the things in having this physical cobalt position, having the Voices Bay stream, you have flow of material as it were, which is all outside of the Congo. So at some future date, if a battery maker, an automobile maker uh, wants to step in and actually take that material, it's mm. another available source. So we sort of see ourselves, in addition to copying the streaming and royalty model, we're actually creating a conflict-free supply chain outside of the Congo. Okay, I was going to ask you about this later, actually. So explain to people what's going on in the, in the DRC, which makes that problematic for you as an ethical sourcer. Yeah, so, so to be very clear, we have zero investments in the Congo and we've told everyone categorically that we're not going to invest there. That's a very important point. Right. But what's going on there is very straightforward. Some of the highest grade copper, um, some of the highest grade ores actually sit inside of the Congo. And what happened uh, and has happened for cassiterite, which is tin and a bunch of other mm -hmm. materials over, over the course of the last 20 years, is that when a given uh, basic materials price gets sufficiently high, it's actually economic for literally an individual to go out there with a shovel, right. dig up they, the they ore, have, and put it in a sack and sell right. it, right? And so, right. um, you know, what, what happened and has been happening for a long time with, with cobalt in particular, but a bunch of other metals have suffered the same fate, including copper and, and, and cassiterite and, and tantalum, and, right. uh, is that, uh, you know, in these situations where they're very poor, um, you know, people bring their kids along. And so you have people who are missing school or you have a, a family member, a friend who's kind of having this child who might be 10, 12. I think there's some, you know, great Wall Street Journal reporting on this and, and Global Witness has reported on this. Mm -hmm. uh, they're having these children out there digging this, um, this war that's ultimately getting put into the supply chain. Uh, where we come in is we're saying, look, we can't fix that problem. I believe people can fix that problem, but we're not unable to fix that problem. And so what we're offering is a product where none of our material touches any of that supply chain. Um, and, and what we think is, you know, the early adopters of electric vehicles, in particular in like the US and Canada and Europe, mm. um, yeah, I think they're green individuals. Like they, they care about the environment. And so 
I think that they care about the supply chain of the materials that comprise that electric vehicle, and they want to know that um, that their new name, the name of the car, is actually not having conflict cobalt inside of it. Is this is this a, a marketing thing? I mean, are we saying that these companies are will find it easier to market a green product? Well, it's ethical. Versus, I mean, I know it's ethical. I know it's ethical, but you know, there's a kind of balance between is it a is it a gimmick for marketers or is it a genuine concern? For these countries, I think in the companies, I think I think it's also a legal concern. I mean, you know, if you're, right. uh, you know, there are um, there are laws like in the U.S. I'm familiar with. Right. You you can't be like, uh, you can't be selling a product with known conflict materials. I mean, uh, you know, so you run into legal issues. So I think mm. it's twofold. I think there's just an ethical issue, but I think there's also um, a legal issue. And look, I do believe that with time, you know, companies are thinking about ways with blockchain and, and different technology mm. to bag and tag, which is what they did with TIN. Mm. Um, meaning, you know, you go all the way back to the source, you put it into a bag that you can verify, then they put a barcode on it. Uh, none of these systems are perfect, mm. uh, but none of them properly exist for cobalt yet. So, uh, you, well, yeah, you, you say they're not perfect. So, but who measures uh, or monitors what is and is not ethical, and you say so. It doesn't places. exist. I mean, really, right. really. I mean, I think if you're um, a cathode maker, a battery maker, an automobile maker, at the moment, what you do is you buy directly from large mechanized miners. So you buy from a Glencore or a Valet, yeah. because I do believe that those companies are able to look through the supply chain. Right. But but I think there's only so much cobalt that's produced by those companies. Right. And so as soon as you step in to like an aggregator, I think you start to enter a pretty murky space, right. uh, which we're completely avoiding. And you know, people are making efforts to clean it up. It right. just will take time. And in, in Congo? Well, what, they're, what generally... they're doing is they're, they're trying to create tracking systems. Um, there's a couple companies trying with blockchain chain technology mm -hmm. to really be able to demonstrate that we're talking about cobalt, but this could be true of any of the materials. Like, look, okay, here's your car. And by the way, here's the manifest and, you know, the cobalt came from here and, and it's sort of ethically sourced, but you know, it's a very complex issue. And I'll give you an example. Sure. If you're a, um, a refiner or a processor and you have 15 sources of cobalt, uh, you know, 14 of them may be legitimate, but if the 15 one isn't, it all gets mixed get up and, it's, and it taints the yeah. whole, uh, the whole, you know, and the LME, by the way, uh, the London Metals Exchange, you know, they've announced that they're taking steps to, to try to look back into the supply chain and so I think people are aware of the issue. It's just very complex, and it's not going to be something that's just sorted out, you know, like that. It's going to take years. Yeah, yeah. Well, and I guess in the meantime, there's always going to be a market for what your term, you know, you're determining is well, and others are determining as um, unethical or not green. Well, I mean, there's always there's always going to be a, yeah, there will be that market. But I, I can tell you, we spend a lot of time in, in China. I was in Beijing last week. Yeah. And, and uh, there's this kind of idea that the Chinese don't care. And I think that's completely false. I mean, I, mean, right. like, I can tell you, like, we were with a lot of major automakers, battery makers. They're acutely aware of this problem as well. Right. And, and they care also. I mean, you know, they uh, in China, and, and we can talk about this, you know, China is really setting uh, environmental policy globally around the adoption of electric vehicle. Mm -hmm. you know, the intention there is ultimately not to sell you a battery, but to sell you a car. So you're driving your Beijing auto car in London. Like that's going to be the future, but setting that yeah. aside. So they're acutely aware of this problem. And I can tell you that, you know, the Chinese consumers who are making these electric vehicles, they don't want to buy this stuff either. And, and so um, the problem isn't like, you know, it's a global problem, I guess is what I'm getting at. 
Yeah, yeah, I think that's, and we can probably come come on to China later because they seem to be leading from the front on a certainly in the battery space at the, at the moment. So, tell me a little bit about you. You come from a financial background. This, I think, you position this as a financial play. That what you've constructed here. So. Tell us a bit about, about you, how that's informed your thinking and the strategy of the business. Yeah, so I, look, I've spent my career primarily as a resource investor, mm -hmm. uh, investing primarily in metals and mining, but also oil and gas to mm -hmm. a lesser extent yeah. um, in, in, you know, in Europe and, and New York. And it, it has highly informed the business because we really are taking like a risk-adjusted return portfolio approach. Mm -hmm. you know, we try to dilute concentration risk we have you know, multiple royalties across a number of jurisdictions. But all battery metals related? All, all really at the moment nickel and cobalt related. Just those two. Just Would you really be looking at the other battery metals as well? You know, look, I think our investors are primarily interested in that class one nickel okay. that goes directly into the chemical industry mm -hmm. and cobalt. Mm -hmm. And so that's the focus. I mean, there are lithium miners, so you, you can actually go right. buy a lithium company. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, there are actually a lot of copper miners as well. Mm -hmm. but Cobalt as a byproduct is very hard to invest in. In fact, I don't think there's any real legitimate way. Right. Um, and then, you know, the kind of nickel that goes into batteries, once again, it's, it's a harder play. Mm -hmm. And so we have that focus. And then within that focus, we have this portfolio approach of multiple royalties and streams across multiple jurisdictions. And so in a lot of ways, it's kind of um, trying to... Um, you know, kind of diversify risk yeah. such that you're, you know, if one asset, something happened, you, you sort of don't cause yeah. a cataclysmic problem for the business. So tell me about, I mean, royalties is an interesting space. There's not that many players in it. How do you, as uh, an investor in, the, in, in space, this is a financial product for you, do you have any say in what the company's doing or are you just looking at the balance sheets each week and going, Working, yeah, no, I mean, working. so there are like, I mean, each one of the great things about the product is very bespoke. So each mm. each royalty or stream is addressing a specific concern, a specific situation for that company. Mm -hmm. But um, one of the reasons I think why the company is like it is, is you're not running their business. Yeah. Right. Like this is their business. You're, but do you have a say in it? Uh, you definitely don't have a say, but right. but the, the structure is such mm -hmm. that you do have protections. I mean, you have minimum throughput right you know you're covering um you know the entire mine because like if you just as by way of example if you just focused on a little area yeah. you could create an incentive to mine a different part of the mine so so you structure the contract and, and remember you know the industry's been around for over a decade now and so right. people have kind of learned from some of the early mistakes sure, sure. Um, but but what i would say is you're definitely not operating that business uh, and through the structuring of the contract you have protections right but but it's a very hands-off light touch approach so the hard work for you is determining which companies to invest in and structuring the agreement yeah, and also getting them interested you know because when you sure. when you're dealing with a, a, a counterparty that that is potentially a large a large miner you know there has to be a reason why they want to do it as well that yeah that yeah, they're producing they've got options and it's a question of what's the cost, cost of cost capital yeah, sure. exactly. all so, of that kind of good stuff um, so, so what do you spend your time doing then? If, if, if you're sitting back looking at numbers, I mean, what's, what's your time spent on doing? Are you looking at M&A opportunities constantly? Yeah, so we have a list of probably almost every single nickel and cobalt nice. project in the world. I mean, legit, like, right. like it's an Excel document. Right. And, you know, we track very closely the mm. life cycle, where the companies are at. And then we have kind of a, a short list mm. of situations. Um, 
companies that you may not even realize, I won't say them publicly, sure. but that you may not even realize produce nickel or cobalt. Mm. And maybe there's a capital expansion announced. So, well, or they're, they're fixing the refinery. You say, well, hold on a second. Yeah. They don't even show that there's nickel there, but we know there is. So they're getting no credit for that nickel. So what yeah. if we come to them and say, mm. here's $100 million, just by way of example. Sure. Then there would be other companies that would be moving along the development um, kind of timeline. And then there'd be divestitures and maybe a company's buying another company and they need asset finance. And so they're really buying a nickel project. So there's yeah. all these different situations and we monitor them. But th this isn't about their needs, it's about your needs. So you know, talking about the structure is like, what are you actually looking for? Are you looking for a quick monetization event or are you kind of building some, you know, something bigger than that, which when all the parts are put together. Well, you mean Cobalt 27 specifically or? Yeah. So, so um, you know, these contracts are usually life of mine. Right. So you're talking about um, getting product potentially for 30 or 40 years. So this is this is a business. Well, it's that, at your discretion. You can opt well, out or sell or cash in at some point. No, no. The way the way that the way the agreement works, like take Boise's Bay, like right. that's the life of mine, mm. or the royalty on Turnigan. That's for the, the you know that's for what's potentially a sixty year my life, right? Mm -hmm. So these are very long duration contracts, mm -hmm. and that also makes it attractive because ultimately, if you're an end consumer well, of the product, yeah. you can have visibility then on the life of this particular mine. So. Give me a sense of that. So life of mine, this can be up to 60 years. Well, in or, the, in or the case of that one particular mine. What are you maybe? averaging? Uh, it, it, it's very different, right. but I would say uh, by the time people put billions of dollars of CapEx into something, right. I think you're talking 20 to 40 years on a lot of these. That's right, amazing. And that must make the cost carbon for you a lot cheaper. Yeah, no, of course. I mean, when you, when you pick an asset which is in production or almost in production, yeah. You know, the funny thing about finance, as you know, is like if you use a 10% discount rate, yeah. after 10 years, everything is worth zero. Yeah. But I can tell you that's, we can all agree that's a nonsense, right? So, yeah. so it's, it's sort of the funny thing about the cost of capital mm. and, um, and how you look at these investments. Yeah. So you actually have massive upside just because of the nature of a discount rate, which is kind of this esoteric thing, yeah. which people don't care about in the short term. Yeah. But, but as you compound these royalties and streams, and you keep adding to the portfolio, yeah. you actually ultimately are creating a huge free cash flow scenario in years to come, right? Well, absolutely. And so wait, wait, actually tell me this, how long have you been with the business? So uh, uh, my partner and I, Justin Cochran, we took right. it public uh, about two years ago. Right, okay. And, and what was the kind of major moment? Did you, did you get the strategy right from day one or was there a, a moment where you thought actually... No, that, I mean, it was always the strategy to begin with. Like right. if you go back and read the prospectus, I think mm. you know, even in the prospectus, uh, although we were focused on that physical, that initial physical yeah. holding when we went public, even in that initial prospectus, when you read it, you can see that this was always the business plan. I mean, mm. we really, even from the earliest days when we were putting the team together, you know, Justin, yeah. um, he spent, um, prior to joining us, he was at Sandstorm, which is one of yeah. the royalty companies in Canada. Yeah. And then yeah. prior to that, he was a banker at NBF, right. um, doing streams and royalties. And so right. even like the formation of the team was twofold. One was getting the technical industry knowledge. And then the other, of course, was the actual financial knowledge. And so this was always kind of the plan. Right. So what's, what's it look like going forward? I mean, you're starting to build up a body of work, as it were, a portfolio, which gives you the credibility in, this, in the market. I mean, is there a limit to this? 
how much thing you can manage. You've got quite a big board, you know, a lot of advisors on there. So well, the, remember that there's a board and there's an advisory board. Right. So the, the advisory board is unpaid advisors who kind of help along the way, but the actual board is 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 kind of um, just I would say standard. Right. So I think we're we're kind of at a moment now where Voices Bay was closed earlier mm -hmm. last year, mm -hmm. um, and you know Highlands Pacific acquisition closes in May this month. Yeah. Um, and it's time now to let sort of the cash flow start coming in and, yeah. and let the share price appreciate. Right. Um, you know, we've we did a lot of capital raising in the first couple of years. Mm. We had a lot of price volatility around the commodity. Right. And so I think it's time now to let investors um, kind of reap the benefit of that. And so right. I, don't, I don't foresee anything immediate just because mm. uh, we need to kind of let the stock age here a bit. Okay, because I guess you're trying to balance way up the opportunities in the marketplace because the, the price, the commodity prices, certainly in battery metal, metals, even gold, even uranium, there's a few price, a few commodity prices which are suffering, which often says opportunity, especially for companies struggling with cash. So you've got cash, people need cash, and your big spreadsheet must be telling you there's a, there's a few, pe few people out there, but at the same time, you've got these shareholders you're saying it's important to get Including myself. No, Including yeah, myself, right. Like, like cre and what does that mean when you say, I got you, we got to look after shareholders now? Well, no, I mean, like the creation of share, ultimately, the businesses, the endeavor is not worth doing if the people who invest in the business aren't making money. I mean, that's yeah. fundamentally, you're not going to have support. Yeah. And it doesn't make sense. So um, we've been exceptionally active. I mean, we've raised hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. in the last few years. Uh, we've done, I'm not I'm unaware of anyone who's done more MA in terms of deal numbers. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's just a certain fatigue, and now right. you, you have to kind of let these assets settle into the business. Breathe a bit. Yeah, I mean, think about it. You yeah. Know, you have Boise's Bay, you have Holland Pacific, you know, two premier world class assets. Mm. On the development side, you have Turnigan, the largest nickel sulfide, undeveloped nickel sulfide. You have Dumont. I mean, you start going mm. through that. This has happened in like two years. Yeah. Uh, you know, we, had, we raised 300, then we raised 200, we raised 100, we raised 200. You know, so so there, a lot has happened in a very short period. Right. And you know it's it's time now to kind of like digest it. Right, you know? I get it. That's uh, fantastic. Yes, fantastic. It's, just, it's just it is what it is. So we talked about the board a second ago. Tell me about the active members of the board and the and the, and the management team, people who actually are involved in a day to day yeah, basis. Yeah, so I think on the management side, uh, besides myself, you have Justin Cochran, who, as mm -hmm. I described, you know, he's really one of the one of the top streaming guys um, mm -hmm. in the world, and and he really joined because he has learned from. The good and the bad and the mm. ugly uh, uh, of, of the streaming industry over the last decade, yeah, because it has evolved. Yeah, um, so that's in, just in what, way, in what way? What do you mean it's evolved? Like just as a basic example, like in the early days of a stream and royalty, they they had terms which might have been so oppressive that if anything went wrong with the mine, you know, it could send it into bankruptcy. So, so they're yeah. just little kind of things like that. Death spiral type yeah, structures. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so it's completely evolved right. away from that. Or like a basic example could be, you know, um, if this, let's just use a piece of paper, sure. you know, if this is your mine yep. and you're only streaming this little portion over here, well, you're creating an incentive for them to mine it over here. So when, yeah. you, when you create the, 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 the diagram, you take the whole, you know, so there's- You are affecting strategy on a company which you shouldn't be running, I guess. Exactly. Right. So the point is, I think the whole industry mm. has learned from these, um, from these uh, evolutions, as it were. Right. And Justin was there through that process. So he kind of brings that really critical knowledge of the underlying document. Yeah, yeah, it's, 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 it's tough being there. Um, and, then, and then the next guy is called Martin Vidra. Right. And Martin is a very interesting case. So he was 30 years at Sherritt. Right, yeah. Uh, 
and he worked in you know he was at MOA, which is a nickel nickel cobalt mine. Mm-hmm. He was in the technology group, so he brings a real depth of technical knowledge about nickel and cobalt operations globally. Right. So he's part of the assessing process. Yeah, and, and he's just generally critical. I mean, you know, if if um, if he's going to look at a mine or mm-hmm. talk about processing, I mean, really, you're talking to Martin. Mm-hmm. Sort of thirty years of experience there. And interestingly, prior to that, his father was at Sherritt for 20 years. So, so these guys have the nickel right. cobalt in their blood. Right, right. And that's really um, the core, the core of, of the team. Right. Uh, we also have a director of communications who, who, who does that. But, but you know, the model allows for very lean, uh, a very lean operation. Yeah, I suspect. I mean, your GNA must be next to negligible. I mean, I can tell you the biggest aspect of the GNA was 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 actually like legal fees and banking fees from all the transaction yeah, costs. Right. So actually, that goes down quite a bit um, right. when you're not transacting. For sure. For sure. So and you've got a bunch of advisors, which are, I, I guess, you go to for specific you reach matters. In, yeah, exactly. Right. You, you, okay. reach in, you reach into those advisors in specific moments based on whatever their expertise is. Right. But then you have a, a traditional board of directors. Yeah. And there's a, a, a range of skill sets there, like, you know, take Frank Estergaard, you know, chairman mm-hmm. of the audit committee, and you know, he was a partner at KPMG. Mm-hmm. So an exceptional person to have on there. He's a non-exec, but, yeah. you know, just with the financial statements, like someone like that is really helpful. Yeah. Um, you know, take Nick French. He was probably one of the main cobalt traders in the world for 30 years. So once again, a non-executive director, but you have a question and you call Nick and mm. Nick's got an answer for you. So. Mm. Um, you kind of go through that board. Phil Williams was a banker in in Toronto, and mm-hmm. so there's a certain advice there on financings. Right. Um, you know, Candice, she's an executive at a, a gold mining company. So you kind of put together this team of experience that um, you know everyone has an opinion, and they're all different, but, right. but but everyone has a perspective, which I think is beneficial to the broader board. Yeah, I guess it says you know you know what you don't know. Yeah, like great. The, the known unknowns and the unknown unknowns. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right. I'm glad, I can never remember remember how to say that, so let alone understand it. Um, so tell me about the finances. I want to get onto the share price because you talked about letting, giving something back to the shareholders. The the the, the stock has seen a fall, you know, from this time last year to where it is today. So, you know, about a third. So you, you need to yeah. give them something back. So tell well, me about the the the, the economics. Yeah. So I, I think what happened is in the early days of the stock. Um, you know, I know a lot of retails wouldn't, retail investors wouldn't have Bloomberg, but I think there's mm. other free sets. If you actually took mm. our share price and the cobalt price and overlaid it, mm. like you'd see a pretty tight correlation going up. Right. And by the way, cobalt peaks at $44 a pound mm. and you know, it goes all the way down to 13. It's coming mm. back at 18 now. Right. By the way, our share price would, would follow it down the downtrend. Right. Right. And so I think what happened was, and probably rightfully so, mm-hmm. the business was exceptionally correlated to cobalt price mm-hmm. and sentiment around cobalt. Mm-hmm. And I think and hope what is going to happen now is we'll transition away slightly from being just a proxy for cobalt into actually being a proxy for cash flow, right? Because right. as you know, Highland Pacific now closes on I think May, middle of May, right? Yeah. You know, all of a sudden there's cash flow there. You know, Boise's Bay they start producing. You know, the kind of about two years out, like there's cash flow, and so I think you tradi- you kind of transition away from this binary correlation to the cobalt move. Although there is and always will be a correlation, yeah. it's not like you're getting the seesaw effect. So to, I mean, it comes back to your strategy here, right? You know, what kind of you know what kind of multiples do you get for cash in this business? Um, 
versus you know mitigating it by buying into actual mining equities rather than royalties where you, there's some upside or blue sky potential. I mean, how does it work? So the large cap names like uh, Franco and mm -hmm. Wheaton, you know, they're trading on like at certain points over two times, right? Right. Uh, two, two times like a PNAV ratio. Yeah. Uh, now, mind you, they're highly liquid names and uh, you know, the market has changed for, for smaller cap companies mm. um, with a premium value, obviously, on more liquid names. That's just the nature of the capital markets today. Mm -hmm. So I don't know that we would achieve that per se. But, but certainly, you know, trading in the mid one and a half is, is achievable. Mm -hmm. If you look at an, an Altius, which is a base metal streaming yeah. company, I mean, it's a completely different model. Sure. But you have to pick kind of comps out there. You know, that's potentially um, something you could look at. So we think that what will happen is we've initially traded as a complete proxy for cobalt price. Mm. But now as we bring in, we bring in what's really a nickel, you know, nickel asset highlands, I think what will hopefully happen is a transition away from a binary correlation to cobalt yeah. to, to a more streaming-like multiple. And that will also be, uh, in addition to, to implying a higher share price, mm. I think that's more stable, right? Like that, that, that becomes yeah. a more stable valuation yeah. as opposed to like a whipshaw with the cobalt price. And you're gonna stick, you're gonna stick with that, that you're not gonna, you know, like we talk about some of the investors, you know, who'll be listening to this either on the podcast or, you know, or watching the video. You know, they have a blended portfolio approach. Are you going to resist that? Are you going to just stick with what you know? No, I, I think there's no there's no intention um, to move past nickel and cobalt at this time. We okay. looked at a lithium royalty last year, mm. and the pricing was wrong. Um, we thought it was interesting. The pricing was just not right. Um, mm. And then we also kind of thought it through and realized, you know, there are a lot of options for investors in lithium, yeah. SQM, Albemarle. I mean, uh, yeah. any number of public companies. Yeah. And so like, why buy us over them? I don't know why you would do that. And so I think, I think we kind of really, at that moment, we moved away from the lithium royalty. I think we realized that, that people are buying us and owning us for that, uh, for that cobalt exposure and that class one nickel exposure. Actually, that's a good question you just asked. So why should they buy you for the cobalt, cobalt nickel exposure? Yeah, yeah exactly. And so you, what, you know, what, what's different about you guys? But that, there is no primary, the only primary cobalt producer on earth is Managem, right? Which is owned by the Prince and the family in, in Morocco. Um, there are some exploration companies out there, but that's just a totally different, you know, every 10 minutes people are raising capital and there's dilution. And by the way, in the right market, that's a great game. Mm -hmm. We're not playing that game at all. Right. So if you think about it like that, but there's no exposure as it were to specifically the part of the battery that we're offering. And that's the differentiator. Like if you right. want real cobalt exposure, like here we are. If you want that class one nickel exposure that goes into the battery industry, yeah. like, like MCC, like uh, you know that Ramu production, mm. that's going into batteries everywhere. So that's really that leverage that you're getting, which I don't think you can find anywhere else. You know, for instance, if you buy Glencore stock, mm -hmm. yeah, like Glencore is the world's largest producer of cobalt, but by the way, that's probably an irrelevance as compared to their copper business and their coal mm -hmm. business. Mm -hmm. So you're not really buying cobalt exposure, are you? No. And that's and that's where and even like with nickel, it's kind of the same analysis. Like, look at Norilsk. Well, actually, are they a palladium company now? I mean, you yeah. know, just based on palladium's run. And so when you kind of go through the options out there, yeah, um, you know, or there's a great nickel company in, in Australia. You know, uh, I think it, uh, what is it called? Nickel Mines, maybe. Well, well that's yeah. nickel pig iron. That's going into steel. So yeah. you start kind of going through the options. Um, you know, like take Giga Giga Metals, one of the largest undeveloped nickel sulfide deposits on earth. 
fantastic optionality, once again, like that's a development place. So these are all different and we're offering yeah. something very specific. You know, you're not gonna have that exploration upside with what we're doing. This is a very uh, conservative model. Yeah, so what do you think that, I mean, just to finish it off on the shareholder component, what do you think that's gonna do for your share price? You know, you talk, we talked about a bit of time to breathe, a little bit of time to give back to the shareholders. If people come in now, new people looking at you, is there going to be reasonable appreciation there? Or mod, you know, how would you describe the opportunity for them? Oh, I don't think like a forward-looking statement could pop up. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, like, boom. But, I mean, I, mean, look, I think I think the point is what what we're striving to do is transition mm. um, from this binary cobalt proxy mm. to a streaming and royalty multiple. Right. And if that happens, which we that's what we're trying to do. If right. that happens, then that will imply in uh, a lot better share price. And so I don't want to give guidance about what that sure, price sure, is, but, 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 but like that transition implies in uh, a better share price. Okay, so let, let's talk about a couple of things uh, more about the company, but I, I want to kind of your view on the market in, in a moment, if I may. So you had a busy year, a lot of M&A last year, probably a bit exhausted, but what's your report card for 2018 look like? What would you have done differently? For 18, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say, like it's hard in the business because you can't hedge mm. these liquid commodities. So if you had this crystal ball and you looked at what was really a collapse in the cobalt price from 44 down to 17, mm. um, you could go back and say, oh, we would hedge this or do that, but, but you actually really can't. Mm. And so it's, it's hard to, to look back. I mean, we raised capital at a high cobalt price and you know, did not anticipate, frankly, that it was going to roll over as hard and as fast as it did. Mm. You, know, you wouldn't raise the money at that price in the same way because obviously, mm. you know, there's implications there, but, yeah. but I mean, there's no way to hedge that. So yeah. that was the business model. We told everyone what we were gonna do and we did exactly what we told the market we were gonna do. Um, so I don't know how you can, other than just not doing the deals, mm. I'm not sure how you can do it because unlike say copper where you could actually hedge it out, with, with cobalt, it's just not really, really possible. Right, okay. And so, like, you started two years ago, share price of? $9 with the IPO. Right. Goes right. all the way up to? 12 something. No, above 13, 13.40. 13.14, right. And now it's kind of mid 4, 4, 4, 4, 4.50. Back down. So you and, and mind you, the very important point yeah. is pull up the cobalt chart and pull up our share price sure. chart, and it's like. For sure. These things go in cycles. Um, but you've got a model which, okay, I think some people have been doing it for a while, but as you say, the royalty uh, business has changed. Um, you think this is cyclical, it's caused by commodity price, um, things will get better, and you've, you're actively saying we need to give something back to the shareholders. That's, that's the message I'm hearing. Well, it's just, it just gives, I mean, obviously we have a dividend policy and a buyback policy, which allows yeah. us to, to either give a dividend or buy back shares and do both. So that's right. the give back implies that, which is which is obviously part of the corporate policy. Right. But I think it's also, you know, allowing the transition from binary cobalt proxy to yeah. streaming and royalty multiple it takes time. Okay. And when I say give something back, what I really mean is to try and allow that transition to happen. Right. So but, but that's a message you need to, you know, share and I guess you are sharing all around the world yeah. that we're going through this transit. We know what we're doing. We're in control. We understand the process. We just need to give it that time to get back to where we think mm -hmm. it could be. Exactly. Is that fair enough? Yeah. Okay, so can we talk about the market? Yeah, sure. Because I want you to help 
our viewers and listeners understand a little bit more about what's going on with the in the battery storage space and uh, you know the battery space generally okay so commodity prices are down why do you think that is okay so um, as, as you say like and as I said earlier this is a complete change in these industries yeah and I'm unaware of a single automobile maker who doesn't have an EV planned or mm -hmm. already underway right and by the way this is true in China Korea Japan this is not just like absolutely like Rover right so right. Um, so all these batteries are powered by lithium-ion batteries. Right. Uh, you know, if, if so, you, explain what's in a battery for people, just very quickly. Yeah, so, so, there, so, are there different types of batteries? But generally, what what's it look like? So, so the main component of a lithium-ion battery is the chemistry, mm -hmm. and you know the main chemistry is a nickel-manganese-cobalt chemistry. Mm -hmm. Tesla uses a secondary chemistry called a nickel-cobalt-aluminum chemistry. Mm -hmm. It's a higher nickel chemistry. So what are the percentage breakdowns there? I mean, what's the so, main... So, so Tesla parts? today is kind of an 811, approximately, right. meaning eight part nickel, one part manganese, one part cobalt. Right. The, the prevailing chemistry for the balance of the world is a 532. Uh, over time, evolving towards 811, 622-811. Mm -hmm. The problem is, as you reduce cobalt, you increase nickel. And you know the batteries become unstable, right. um, and can overheat and catch fire. Like a lot of these fires uh, are, yeah. are in part based on the fact that the transition from a from a high cobalt battery to a, a nickel rich battery is complex and challenging. Right. So uh, I actually think the industry has to get there. Like you, you need that transition to happen uh, because, frankly. Um, there's only so much cobalt out there, and, and while there's plenty for the coming years, I just think mathematically, if you assume that 70% of vehicles will be electric, well, actually, you're going to be a lot more nickel and a lot more cobalt. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it, you're talking about doubling, tripling the global production of cobalt to meet the demand in 2025, 2030. And so you actually need this transition to take place. But I think what cathode makers, battery makers are finding is Getting to that 811 chemistry safely mm. and with the durable battery has proven more challenging and taken longer than people think. So, do you, I mean, you said 70%, that's a big number there in terms of the. Yeah, that, 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 that's not like, So, I'm thinking like, like we use like 15% in 2025. Right, okay. But, I mean, 70%, I'm just telling you ultimately, right. um, the world will be primarily electric, but you know, you're going to have other. So, one of the misnomers here is that like there's only one technology, and the, mm. the answer is there's going to be different technologies for different segments. Sure. So for instance, I think fuel cell, I think automobile buses yeah. will very likely be on fuel cells. Because because a fuel cell is not interesting for cars, but on a fixed route, like yeah. at a mine site would be an example. Yeah. Uh, an auto bus where everyone gets sent to the same station, potentially a long haul trucking where everyone's going the same route, they stop right. at the same station. Yeah. Like there's gonna be uses for fuel cells, right? Right. Moving to battery storage, lithium ion batteries, Fantastic for things like your power wall at your house, where it's light and small. Mm. But you know, if you're going to have a massive grid storage uh, installation around a wind farm, you know, frankly, maybe vanadium redox is going to be more interesting over time. Now that technology is not quite there yet, but you know, there's not going to be one brush to paint everything. This is a complete transformation. Yeah, and there is going to be multiple batteries, including lead acid, by the way, including zinc. There's going to be a bunch of different batteries for different applications. And this actually has implications. I think we're talking about cobalt and nickel today, but this has implications for investors who are looking at the space more broadly. 
through the cycle, and the cycle is going to be like a decade-long cycle, there are going to be moments where potentially lead is interesting, where mm. vanadium is interesting. You know, the recent vanadium run actually had nothing to do with batteries. It was about steel policy in China. But exactly. like people were promoting exactly. it as batteries, unrelated, uncorrelated, right? Yeah. Yeah. So a, a bigger takeaway for your investors is, you know, there are a bunch of basic materials that are going to benefit as this thing kind of rolls out, like copper. Mm. 15% of copper demand, you know, 2025, 2030 could be related to electrification more broadly. So this is a big macro kind of trend that's going to impact and touch a wide range of commodities. So general acceptance in the market, that's where it's going. Is it moving at the pace that people thought it would? Faster, way faster. Right. Like, okay. like, like I mean, it, it's actually stunning how much people don't understand that point. So the Chinese numbers came out Q1 this year, EV sales up 100% year on year. Mm. I mean, there's, I'm unaware of any data point which isn't showing tremendous growth. And I think it's this funny thing, like, do you, have you ridden in a Tesla? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, you have, okay. Yeah, so yeah, most yeah. people say no. So yeah. like, like yeah. I always find it funny, I say, like, you know, like I'll sit there with someone that say, oh, it's never gonna happen. Yeah. I've not heard a single person who has actually ridden in one, not owned one necessarily, yeah. ridden in one of these cars who yeah. doesn't instantly see yeah. This is the future. And by the way, I'll tell you something which I know you probably haven't done. Have you ridden in an autonomous vehicle yet? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you, you have? Yeah. Okay, so like, like when you, when you uh, it's rare because most people haven't because you have to like sign up for a demo. <laughs> yeah, so a fully autonomous one, I mean, it is crazy. It is amazing. And what you realize kind of five minutes into, depending on who's giving you the tour, five minutes in, you're like, why am I even driving a car? Yeah. And, and so it's hard to appreciate that pace of change if as the average person, you haven't either ridden in or experienced it, but it's it's sort of like like the iPhone, you know, like take the iPhone. You say like, oh, I've got this new iPhone, why do I need this new iPhone, I got the old iPhone? Yeah. And then, you know, 20 minutes after you use the new iPhone, you're like, actually this one is kind of clunky and old, like yeah. you can't quite articulate why. I think it's kind of the same experience, although I could articulate why. You know, when you ride an EV, when you ride in, um, an autonomous vehicle, you really then you understand why this is happening so quickly, and that doesn't even get into the effects on the environment. That's just like a practical thing. What do you think is driving it? I mean, obviously, like with things like the Paris Accord coming in here, and you've got governments signing up to um, changing the way that their energy structures, are, you know, are, are, are comprised. So. You know, we've got a lot of wind farms here now, which we wouldn't look, have look, 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 so, look, so what's, dry, what's yeah, driving? Yeah, I think this? it's very simple. Like, we're destroying the earth. Right, like, like I don't care, you know, global warming, what, however you want to spin it. There's all this political narrative around it. The bottom line is, like, we're dumping enormous amounts of plastic into the ocean. We're burning down the forest. Like, all these things are happening factually, right? And I just think that there's a growing awareness of the damage that's being caused to the earth. I think that's part of it. And so I think people are becoming more socially aware. That so that's kind of in the West. I think in China is very practical. I think in China, in particular, the Chinese government has said, look, yeah. you know. Our people in these big cities are getting asthma, lung cancer, and we need to clean up the air. And, and there's a bunch of ways to do it, mm -hmm. but a very simple way is if you live in Beijing to say, you, you know, if you buy an internal combustion engine vehicle, it's gonna take you five years to get a license plate, or we'll give you one if, if you um, buy an EV. Those subsidies cost the government nothing. And so I think, you know, in China, it's very practical. You know, in London, it's very practical. Like, it'd be interesting to look, I don't have my phone on me. Mm -hmm. You would be shocked to know that, that um, the London air quality is actually on certain days some of the worst in the world. You're on the strand here. Yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, so, right. um, 
So I, I think I think governments are acknowledging and realizing the need to clean up air in major cities, and so mm. I think that's another driver. So I think there's multiple drivers here, uh, but <clears throat> what's clear is if we don't act around our, our environment, then you know there's going to be irreparable damage for future generations. There's a lot more awareness about it. There's you know everywhere you look, you know there's a lot of, and I'd encourage people to read your uh, PowerPoint. Actually, there's some lovely little uh, snippets of information in there. Um, but there's some discrepancy between this generation who are more aware or greener um, that you know compared to you know the share price of not share price sorry the, the 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 price of some of these commodities you know you people aren't investing into mining as much as they did. Well, that's because they haven't made money. Let's let's be let's, yeah. let's call it straight. So there's people, a discrepancy people, there. Yeah, no, but people didn't make money. I mean, so who's, so, who's so, fault's that? Where's the fault lie? Well, that's a very complex discussion. <clears throat> Um, and, and there's all these changes in global capital markets with money moving towards liquidity, but mining names are relative, like the total market cap of mining is probably less than a couple of the largest single companies. On, like this. So there's all these complex things. But if you want to distill it down to a very important point, yeah. by and large, um, equity investors in the big global markets are judged on an annual basis performance, right? Right. What happens to me this year? And that's how they get paid. That's how they're reviewed by peers. Mm -hmm. Okay. If you find, if you dig a shovel and you hit your gold or your copper, you dig, whatever you hit right now, yeah. if it's ever a mine, if it's ever a mine, on average, it's not going to be a mine for 12 to 15 years. Yeah. Okay. So like you're asking some, some gal or guy who gets paid based on next, by the end of December to like take a view on what happens 15 years from now. It's like, good luck. And so it, it, it's, you have this mismatch. You have this mm. situation where uh, it, it's literally 15 years, if ever, to a mine. And capital duration today has gone increasingly short. Like it's, it's literally, in fact, uh, I would argue that a lot of the big funds in New York are platforms where like there's daily liquidity. Forget, forget this yeah. year. They're, like like they're, they're, their risk departments are looking at things and they're trading today. They're trading by lunchtime. And so... It's this interesting dynamic. And then you have a move towards passive, which means that primary equity raises are harder to do because a passive investor doesn't participate in a primary equity issuance. So you have um, kind of all these forces coming together. And ultimately what it means, I will tell you, and I don't know if that's tomorrow or, or seven years from now, like forget mm -hmm. the day. Mm -hmm. It just means it's creating the next bull market. Underinvestment, underinvestment, uh, inefficient investment in the sector will ultimately mean a massive bull market and, and it won't even be about by the way forget electric vehicles like we consume every single day like look at our look around this room everything is either mined or grown just about and so consumers continue to consume every day and they don't recycle everything that they consume and so because of this inefficiency in the capital market in the longer term you set the stage for bull markets and bubbles in this asset class over time no i agree with that and that's the nature of my question where there's a discrepancy between what people want and their understanding of where it comes from, okay, yeah. you know, and you know, the same could be said, you know, you know, some of, some of the kids at my um, my children's school, they're not actually sure where the meat on their table comes from because it comes in plastic bags, you know, wrapped, and th that's it. That's not a cow. That's just a piece of meat or a piece of chicken or whatever. So, you know, there's, I'm trying to understand, you know, what's changed, or if you've got a sense of what's changed in, say the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years for investors, mining used to be the go-to investment class. Well, that, that's now. because it was a proxy. I mean, if you look, if you look at when, when, uh, when the market was hot, hmm. you know, 
people were really investing in mining as a proxy for GDP growth in China, right? Basic materials. Sure. So that, that, that was driving the, the interest. But also, I think, I think a lot of hedge funds uh, had a lot of different constraints around liquidity. So in other words, they could invest in illiquid, illiquid assets. And I think what happened in the global financial crisis was a lot of hedge funds, a lot of asset allocators were in really liquid things. Not, not everything, but a big part of their portfolio was in mm. liquid things. Mm. And you know when you have a cash call, when you have a redemption or redemptions, uh, and you have to start selling stuff, like what you find mm -hmm. is like a part of your portfolio goes no bid. Yeah. And and I just think that 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 completely changed the way that funds were. This is very high level, but sure, sure. it changed the way that funds were structured. And so now a fund who maybe in two thousand and five could have fifteen of, of his or her percent portfolio in. Um, a liquid assets, maybe today they run 1%, just made up the number, right? Sure. And, and, so, and, so, and, and so by the very nature of, of mining companies, you know, you're at a billion, billion dollar market cap, $1.5 billion market cap in mining, like actually that's a big company. Yeah. By the way, that is completely irrelevant in the, in the spectrum of daily liquidity. Like these funds now, they want to have a $100 million position and they want to be able to sell out of that in two trading periods. And that doesn't exist in mining. And so it creates that inefficiency, whereas a decade ago, or maybe longer now, uh, those constraints weren't there. Yeah, well, well, there's definitely been a move away from um, exploration, I think, from some of the institutions. Yeah, but even in, yeah I agree with that. That's right. gone, because that's too binary. But that's different than liquidity. I'm talking about... No, I understand liquidity, but the, you know, the knock-on effect is, um, you know, and for a lot of people, certainly the investment in the junior mining space here in, in the UK, um, there wasn't the liquidity for them wanting to get out of you know million dollar positions, forget a hundred million bucks, okay? Because things weren't moving, there's no volume there. Um, so that's had a big knock-on effect in the way that juniors, certainly in the UK, and then we see a lot of Canadian companies coming over here hoping to find some money, and there's a, more of a reliance on this re retail, high net worth, family office type money for the, for the smaller. You're you're a pretty big company now. I know you still. Yeah, no, look, junior, look, but, there's a place for retail because historically, way the way it's been is like. Retail, friends and family, retail was the early money. Yeah. You know, the stock but would was, run and then, and then hedge funds would step in, the stock would run again, yeah. institutions, and that, that was the plan. Yeah. Um, look, it still happens from time to time, mm -hmm. but that, that system has been slightly disrupted by a change at the bigger end of the street. Yeah. I still think with, with retail that you can make money. Uh, remember, you know, by and large, even in what we're calling illiquid names, mm. you know, $5,000, which is a real amount of money. You know, my dad's, a high, school people, my dad's yeah. a high school teacher. Like I could tell you for him, that would be a huge position. Yeah. Um, there's sufficient liquidity even in like our stock trades, you know, one to $3 million a day. Right. So a $5,000 position, you can kind of come in and out of. Yeah. But, you know, if you're in a name where you're going to build a mine with a, you know, a billion dollar capex and just making a number up, Ultimately, the big guys are going to have to write a check, mm. and you know. And I think when you're a retail investor, you have to think about that question. Like, unless you're just taking a punt, which is fun and everyone does it from time to time. But if you're if you're saying this is a longer term investment, like you have to think that the, the stock is going to re-rate. So at the next capital raise, it's higher than when you came. But you're going to have to. Think, What's the name of the game? We're buying shares, not, not yeah, the company. Yeah, right? exactly. And so you have to think that ultimately, there's a path towards that big capital raise and becoming a mine. Absolutely. And, that, and that has been completely disrupted. And, and that is, I think, going to result in, at some point in the next decade in, in big bubble, asset class bubbles in our ass, and in big, big bull markets because you know, the pipeline is not getting built. Like, look at nickel, okay? If you need 
if we all agree, and I don't know anyone who disagrees with the statement, that we're going to need a heck of a lot more nickel in five years. Like I literally don't know a single sophisticated person who disagrees with that statement. Right. Not one. Okay, so what's getting built right now globally? Yeah. Like the answer is not much. And that's the, that's the same for a lot of commodities at the moment. Because copper is the same way, to right? But 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 okay. But then this comes back. It's all circular. It comes back to my point. So let's assume we agree. Well, you're an investor. You get paid by year end December. Yeah. I'm talking at the big end of the market now. Like <clears throat> you can't be bothered to think about five or six years now. Like because you're really worried about having your job this year. And so it's creating this weird moment where these projects aren't getting pushed along. And so we're going to wake up. And it's going to go kaboom on on some of these commodities. And it's really interesting, actually, because if you you know, I'll just an example here. You know, UK politics. You know, we vote every four years, and decisions by politicians are made on a short-term basis. Where if we look at the Japanese um, government, they're making decisions 25, 50 years out. That you know, there's a there's a very strong difference between the way that, that politics works. Seems you know, for the for the greater good or for yourself. Look, look. Last week, China just put. A few hundred million more to Ivanhoe, which has this huge copper deposit in the DRC. Mm. Why? Because they know they need copper, right? I mean, but what happened to the ethical component we talked about earlier? Then. Well, I think that's different, right? Because right. that's a that's a development project. Right. When you're developing your own project, you can mm. control those parameters. Right. So that's not so that's not a, there's no artisanal mining there. That's a that's right. developing probably one of the largest copper mines on earth. I mean, I, yeah, okay. So that's okay. a different that's different. But my my point is, so what's interesting is China has. Because I don't begrudge the investor whose job is what their job description is. Like they can't yeah. control that by and large. Right. Because by the way, they have their own set of investors who are demanding that liquidity. Everyone's got a different business model. Right. right. And so, and so, yeah. but China, where China has a unique position and stage, you know, kind of seat at the table, as it were, is that they're able to say whatever. Like we think copper is going to happen, so we're buying the copper mine, and that's going to have big implications on the fourth industrial revolution, which is underway. Yeah. Because. If, if we all agree EVs are going to happen, but not just EVs, a bunch of things like renewables and all these other things, those are all powered by somewhat esoteric commodities mm. and China's going to control all the major deposits. And so, you know, like it's government, so it's really, it's, it's really, really smart. smart no, I, really I, I think they're fantastic. I think they're fantastic. Um, in a way, they kind of control price in that way because they're price insensitive. Price insensitive to a degree. I would say yes, no. I mean, like I can tell you, we're there a lot. These are like people. That's a misnomer. They're not just spraying money. They, they have a very sophisticated process. They they still think about MPV. They do think about the greater good as well. Right. But like I can tell you, there's no free ride. Right. Like that's not true. They like they, right. They're still they still. That's why I said to a degree because I think they you know their tolerance levels are more than most. They can look through cycles, is what I would right. say. Okay. So the, the one of the big differences. Is that a Chinese investor on a world-class project can look through the cycle, mm. whereas um, an investor sitting in New York very much is concerned about the cycle and trading around the cycle, and that's a fundamental difference. Well, like you say, that's the difference between you know a daily trader, a day trader, versus you know forward forward planning. As, as, yeah, as I'm, not, I'm not calling U.S. investors day traders. I'm just saying it's no, just a different. Yes, I'm, I'm just saying it's a different model. No, I understand. I understand. Um, can we just quickly touch gold? I know it's not your thing, yeah. but you're a finance guy, you've got experience in this thing. And it comes back to the discussion we've sort of been having now about sort of sentiment in the marketplace. Gold has traditionally been safe haven, to use that well-worn phrase, for investors in troubling times when you know, the world's at war or there are you know, trade wars in this case. Um, that's not happening right now. Yeah, it's not moving. Gold is interesting. I'm of two minds on gold. Uh, of, of two minds on gold. First of all, I challenge you to find a gold bug who is under 40 years old. 
there is not one that I'm aware of. And so I think you actually have this age problem with gold where mm. um, there's not a new like kind of group of investors who are enamored by gold who are under 40. By the way, those happen to be like a lot of the PMs out there. And so I think there's just this element of, of um, crypto and some other asset classes have supplanted gold. Now, but mind you, on the drop of a hat, it can all kind of come back. Mm. But I think that's part of it. Um, I, do, I do actually think though that gold is interesting from a different perspective, you know, with the weaponizing of the U.S. dollar and with these big gold purchases by the, you know, the Russian and Chinese government, you can see, and also China's trying to re-denominate crude and some different commodities in the RMB, right? So this is all a big strategy to say, like, why should the U.S. government have visibility on every swift transaction in the world? So that, but this is like a 20-year thing. Sure. And so, like, it's very hard to read in, I think, on that basis when gold actually is going to become interesting. I'm not negative or positive. I'm just saying that that's a big macro change, which is going to roll out over 20 years. I also think at some moment, um, you know, we've had unprecedented in modern history printing. Um, at, you know, at some moment, uh, the U.S. will slide into a recession. No, no, I'm not saying end of the world, just like yeah. a typical business style recession. You know, they're going to try to print at some point, point inflation you know, I'm not, I'm yeah. not a gold bug, I'm not a hyperinflation yeah. guy, but inflation yeah. comes in and gold becomes interesting. But I find that that cycle is so hard to call that, that uh, I can see it, you can see it kind of from 100 miles away, Sure. but you don't quite know how fast the car's going to get there, right? But there's the point, you just used a great phrase, it's no one can see when it's coming. You can apply that to uranium, gold, copper, Commodities. Nickel. Commodities. Yeah. And that's, I guess, the... the gold is slightly different because like, like cobalt is highly driven by a supply-demand model, like highly correlated. Gold, like, I don't know, like, are Indian rice farmers buying, are Indian farmers buying gold? And like, what sure. is the supply? Go, go, like, go. I, like, I don't know, I don't know. I don't, like, sure. genuine, but, so I would, I would argue that base metals and gold are, are differentiated on the basis that, that a supply-demand model really impacts your copper view. I understand, it, it, but it, I'm trying to wonder if the sentiment across is, applies across commodities as a whole, irrespective of whether it's an emotional purchase like you know, some, some of the precious metals. It, because people, as you said earlier, people are viewing it differently now. People under 40 are viewing it differently now. There's stuff which we're going to need to build the stuff we want to use every day. And you know, at some point, people are going to have to wake up to the fact that, as you say, there's going to be a bull market. There's going to have to be a bull market because there's not enough mines in production producing the stuff which people need to be able to produce the things that we use every day. So people will wake up to it, but I just want, I'm not sure why we can well, do this. They're not asleep, but let me be clear, like on the base metals, like when you go through New York, like the fund manager, like they're all really in, in smart, intelligent sure. men and women, right? Yeah. So they can see the same thing I see, it's just their structure of capital dictates their investment horizon, okay? So, so mm -hmm. it's not like that, oh, one day magically copper is going to run and they didn't see it coming. Mm. It's going to be that, you know, they think it's coming in 24 months and so let's get in in 22 months. I just made that up, right? So that's different. Whereas gold, mm. gold, I don't think you have, you can have that view as much because probably it is coming, but who, what, when, where, why is much harder to predict when you don't have a supply demand model informing you, in my opinion. I guess the point, the point I'm trying to make about institutions, they've, they've got to make decisions, they're about making money, right? So they set up structures, and if we're saying they're not nimble or flexible enough to change, to adapt, take, 
advantage of a situation. But why would you miss in gold? I mean, what's the S&P return right now? 20% this year? Not necessarily. No, I wasn't talking about gold. I'm talking about the other commodities which are, which are lagging. Like, you know, I'm, I'm going right? to play devil's advocate. Why would you invest in commodities this year? Or the last few, I mean, what, this, this, you show up to someone, right? You show up to mm. a lady in New York and she's running, yep. you, know, you know, they won't, like, like the funny joke here for the retail investor, right. like when you're in New York, um, they, if they don't tell you how much money they're running, it means it's less than $10 billion, right? <laughs> Because when you show up, they're like, oh, we're running $100 billion, right? right? So right. like, why, why does that individual who can invest maybe in anything care about kind of a sector that's <clears throat> underperforming Apple and Amazon? Hmm. Like, like, why do they care? You know, like, that, I mean, you're trying to get them as a company, you're trying to get them to care. Like, we had a moment of caring because of the adoption of the electric vehicle. Yep. But if you talk about the sector more broadly, you know, they can invest in anything they want. And frankly, uh, a lot of this stuff has massively outperformed basic materials, which, by the way, in addition to having underperformed, is also kind of a liquid and kind of hokey and not all the management teams are that great. So, so you know, if you think about yeah. it from their perspective, yeah. it, you know, it's not, it's not time. And, you know, there's an argument that it becomes time when that market's fully invested. Maybe some of the money flows down. But uh, I often suffer from this. And I think a lot of investors who focus on mining suffer from, like, you know, missing the forest for a tree. Mm. So are you saying people are institutional and retail? I've just got smart to the, the game played in the mining sector. I don't, I'm not calling anything a game. I'm just saying that there's been a lot of other opportunities which have materially outperformed. Uh, you know, like look at Yeti. I just say that because I, I, I bought some Yeti stock. I think it's doubled this year. You know what right. I mean? So, and by the way, it's liquid. Um, you know, like start naming these stocks. And so I think, you know, if you're an investor, you got choices. Um, you got choices, and, and like, yeah. that's just a reality. And we shouldn't we should not pretend like I said all the time. You, you I know, said so, all the time. So you know, and I think one of the things that we're trying to give people the choices around an EV proxy adoption, but talk about the industry more general. Like if I'm if I'm Anthony and I can buy anything, like tell me why should I buy your gold company over Apple stock right now? Yeah. And that's and the answer is maybe I shouldn't, and I, or maybe I should. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you could have a long-term view about the commodity, okay, the so sector, a, a, and all of that. A long-term view, long view, so, okay, like, I'll play devil's advocate. Okay, yeah. okay, great. So you're telling me gold's going to run in, in two years. Well, great. I'm going to own Apple for two years, collect my dividend. And then invest. <laughs> and then I'll buy gold. And that, that's Maybe. kind of what you're, but that's what you're facing. Because like, I, I talk yeah. to these investors all the time. Yeah. That's, they say, Anthony, so is this happening? When's this happening? So well, I don't necessarily, well, that's great. Yeah. I'm up 20% of the S&P this year. Like, let's talk, let's talk when it's going to happen. I mean, it's maybe a discussion for another time, but then that leads to issues for, again, some of these companies who are struggling for cash. You know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in exactly. a way, right? But it's a great for companies like you. But like I say, conversation for another time. Yeah. Look, let's, um, let's finish up here because I want to ask you about, um, well, without forward-looking statements, I want to ask about this year. You sort of explained that uh, earlier on, but maybe talk about deliverables or focus this year or the next year? Yeah, I think for the balance of the year, it's about closing the Highlands acquisition, getting it all, everything kind of in place, and, and really um, you know, making sure that everything is buttoned down, having done a bunch of acquisitions, mm. and then hopefully having the cobalt and nickel price come our way a little bit so that, that you know, we get a, a bit of a re-rating, not only from the underlying commodities, but also from this transition from um, you know, being what was initially a stockpile to now being really a streaming and royalty company. Fantastic, fantastic. Okay, we're gonna finish off. Give me five reasons why people should consider investing in Cobalt 27. Uh, it's simple, we're a proxy for the adoption of electric vehicle, mm -hmm. and I think there's no one else out there doing what we're doing. Going with one big one. 
That's the big one. Okay. <laughs> Fine. Brilliant. Hey, Anthony, thanks very much thanks for your time. Lovely to meet you. Cheers, yeah. And uh, we look forward to catching up with you again soon. Of course, anytime. Brilliant. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much for watching our video. We do aim to give you informed and intelligent information with which to make your investment decisions. So if you liked what you just saw, please give us a thumbs up. And if you want to see more insightful, in-depth, honest and unbiased interviews, then please click the subscribe button. So thanks again for watching and we look forward to seeing you again soon.